You're listening to the audio podcast of Richard Hefner's Open Mind. For more information, visit 13.org slash open mind. I'm Richard Hefner, your host on The Open Mind, and it's hard for me to realize that it's been a half dozen years since David Callahan, the brilliant young Princeton PhD in politics and the co-founder of Demos, the public policy think tank, joined me here to discuss his insightful book on what he called our cheating culture, what Americans are doing wrong to get ahead. Well, now John Wiley and Sons has published my guest's Fortunes of Change, about the rise of America's liberal rich and what he sees as their likely remaking of our country. David Callahan says that though rich liberals, and he ticks them off in this absolutely intriguing new book, Fortune by Fortune, Political Venture by Political Venture, that though rich liberals remain a small minority of their class, their ranks are growing along with their influence and perhaps they have reached or will soon reach a critical mass in America. An intriguing thesis, to say the least, and one that I would ask my guests to develop further, and particularly to indicate which liberal causes will fare the best and which will fare least well, as we learn even further that money is the mother's milk of politics, and that though rich and poor are all the same, Rich is one heck of a lot better and so much more powerful in the political sector. Where do you think the influence will be greatest, David? Well, I think one of the biggest areas is going to be the environment. You see a lot of these wealthy people, they care about the environment. They're worried about climate change. Many have a scientific background. They know that the research about climate change is real. The earth is warming because of man-made influences. And that is an area where uh, a number of these rich liberals have put a lot of money into trying to change the direction of American public policy. Seemingly, however, they haven't succeeded, at least on the governmental level. Not yet. I mean, that uh, effort to pass a cap-and-trade bill uh, failed just this year. Uh, you know, I wrote an article after that uh, saying that there's a divide in the upper class between the clean rich and the dirty rich. And the dirty rich are people who make their money from heavy industry, fossil fossil uh, fuel-based in, uh, industries, natural resource extraction. You know, the old capitalist model of you get ripped, rich by uh, raping and pillaging the environment. But then there's the clean rich, who are people who make their money in ways that don't really have a big e ecological footprint. Uh, some of them may be working in the, uh, to develop renewable energy technologies. And there's kind of this clash going on between the dirty rich and the clean rich. The dirty rich still have the upper hand. ExxonMobil <laughs> spends a lot of money lobbying as the, uh, uh, some of these other energy companies. They're much better organized than the clean rich. But I do think the tables are starting to turn in that area. Well, that's what I want to ask you about. What indicates that the tables are turning? Well, for one thing, the House of Representatives in 2009 passed a cap-and-trade bill. It's a bill that a lot of environmentalists weren't so happy with because it had various loopholes. But just the fact that anybody, uh, any House of Congress was able to pass uh, some kind of climate change uh, legislation was, was, to me, big news. And... 
one of the reasons that happened is because the environmental groups in America have become a lot bigger and more powerful. And one place they're getting their money from is these rich liberals. You know, there's this uh, one guy who I talk about in my book named David Gelbaum. Most people never heard of him. He's a, a math whiz who made hundreds of millions of dollars in hedge funds. This guy alone has given the Sierra Club $200 million. That's big money. Uh, you got Gordon Moore, another huge environmental donor. Uh, Gordon Moore will be known to, to some people here, uh, uh, some of your viewers, as the uh, co-founder of Intel. Uh, mm. He's spending hundreds of millions of dollars on environmental issues. You didn't have that 10 or 15 years ago in America. You didn't have that kind of big money behind environmental causes. Indeed, you list so many uh, generally younger people. Uh, you list so many people who are putting so much money in. I wrote down a whole list because I thought, my gosh, maybe one of them would contribute to keep the open mind on the air. But uh, how is this going to go forward? How does it match... Um, governmental need to tax more, to raise more money, to meet our other problems? Are we just going to leave it to the uh, clean rich to do this for us? Yeah. I mean, one thing that should be clear is that there's no way that private charity can ever match uh, government action, right? I mean, all the private charities in America can't come close to, to government in, in terms of their power to solve social problems. So in no way do I say in my book that, oh, you know, these, these rich philanthropists are going to come in and solve problems like, uh, you know, poverty or illiteracy or, or what have you. Uh, I do say, though, that when you have uh, uh, rich people who are lining up behind some of these long-term uh, liberal causes, it can change what government is capable of doing. What do you mean? Well, if you have, uh, you know, a, a, let's just take the example of tax policy. I, I devote a whole uh, chapter in my book to tax policy. Government can't really do much if it can't raise money in the form of taxes to do things. Uh, and historically, uh, you know, the rich have been sort of quite opposed to taxes on them to to raise more government money. But uh, as I describe in my book, there, there has been a shift there that you see more uh, wealthy people who are ready to pay higher taxes to make investments, public investments, in the kinds of things we, they think this country needs. You know, wealthy people who think that we need more inve investments in clean energy, more investments in infrastructure, more investments in education, if this country is going to reach its potential and also be globally competitive, and they're willing to pay higher taxes to make those investments. So there was a, just this, uh, in this election, uh, there was a ballot initiative in the state of Washington to raise taxes on the richest citizens of that state, a surtax on millionaires, in order to invest in education in the state of Washington. That ballot initiative was backed by Bill Gates, Bill Gates Sr., Bill Gates' father, put in a half a million dollars to try to, to pass that ballot initiative. It didn't succeed, but there's one in Oregon like it that did succeed. So, I mean, that's just an example of how some of the uh, political wins can shift when you have a shift in the upper class. Does this mean that they're so rich that uh, there's too much money at home already to be worried about taxes that go up now? Well, you know, if you're, if you're a multimillionaire or, or a billionaire, 
uh, you don't necessarily worry about your tax rate going up a couple percentage points because you got plenty of, of money where that came from. Um, but uh, I think what it is is that these people have, uh, you know, I'm often asked, well, w w when the richer support Democrats who want to raise their taxes, aren't they voting against their own self-interest? But in fact, these wealthy people who are willing to see taxes go up take a different view of their self-interest. Their view is that they'll get richer in the long run in a society that has a strong educational sector, invests in scientific research, invests in infrastructure, you know, is laying the foundations for prosperity. They'd rather pay a higher tax rate in an America that is richer than a lower tax rate in an America that is poor. That's because of the nature of the sources of their wealth, as you said, to begin with. Right. And, and that's really a key point in the book. Uh, what I suggest that the, that the upper class has turned more liberal, not because a bunch of rich people woke up one day and decided that they wanted to become Democrats, but rather because the people in the upper class changed. You've seen more people coming in who made their money in the knowledge economy, who made their money in fields like technology or some of the more complex parts of finance or in healthcare uh, or in the uh, legal profession, uh, in entertainment, people who understand that we live in a complex world, that wealth is created not because somebody's like, you know, Horatio Alger, you know, some heroic individual model of wealth creation, which is what libertarians believe, but rather wealth is created because we live in a complex society that supports wealth creation with universities, with infrastructure, with scientific investments, and that if you, if you want the knowledge economy to grow, you need to invest in the foundations of that economy. You sound as though we're on the cusp of a grand new world. Well, I, I wouldn't go that far. I mean, we just had a we just had an election in which uh, some rather reactionary voices prevailed. Uh, you know, the history of this country tends to be two steps forward, one step back. I, I think we just took a step back. But I do think that, um, you know, the, 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 the view uh, among people on the left has historically been that the, that the wealthy class is, is allied with the reactionary interests, that there are always these kind of you know, narrow-minded uh, oligarchs who just want to feather their own nests uh, and who are always against workers or environmental protection or you know, other kinds of things. And what I suggest is that that, that, that equation has changed, that the, that the people in the upper class are different than they were 20 or 30 years ago. I mean, if you go back to the 1980s and look at the Forbes 400 list of the richest 400 Americans, when that list was first published, it was filled with kind of old economy millionaires, people who made their money in oil or manufacturing or heavy industry or, or heirs to, uh, with names like DuPont and, and Rockefeller. You look at the Forge 400 list today and, you know, the Google guys, uh, who, who both are computer scientists by training, who grew up with academic parents, uh, who made their money in technology, who are Democrats or high up on that list, uh, you know, Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook uh, is now number nine on the list with a $7 billion fortune. The oil men who, you know, used to dominate the list have sort of are disappearing. They're, they're dying off. Uh, there's definitely some of those still there. But it's a real changing of the guard in the upper class. And 
Of course, what interests me is that um, at the end of your book, at the very, very end of the book, you indicate little uneasiness um, about all that. You say since America, since America's founding, its most exciting, most radical ideal has been the presumption that all people are equal and that no one because of birth or wealth is intrinsically superior to anyone else. Although that ideal has continually evolved to include more groups to the point where we now have an African-American president, it is deeply threatened by the rise of a large class of affluent super citizens, the very people you're talking about. And and this is where we get into the the fact that this is a double-edged sword, right, and which I discuss throughout my book, which is, you know, if you're a Democrat or liberal, you look at somebody like George Soros, who has given millions of dollars to democratic causes, and you say, thank God for George Soros. Thank God he's come to rescue us from those Republicans. Uh, how great it is that George Soros has spent all this money uh, to build liberal think tanks and advocacy groups. On the other hand, you've got to be troubled, whatever your politics, by that kind of money in our electoral system, backing advocacy organizations, and, you know, I think it's very, it's still money in politics, no matter what side it's on. And, you know, I think that we saw in this most recent election, uh, the pendulum sort of swing and a lot of new conservative money uh, appeared on the scene uh, to help oust the Democratic majority of the House. And, you know, there's a lot of, of real unease about that. Well. You know, that, that money, as big as it was, was really nothing compared to the money that liberals spent, liberal billionaires spent in 2004 uh, to oust George Bush or, you know, significant uh, spending in 2006. So it's scary. I mean, there's a huge flood of money into our politics, and uh, there's more money coming to Democrats. And, and if you're a Democrat, that can seem to be a good thing. But overall, I think that we should all be quite concerned about this. Okay, what do you do with that concern? Well, you as a scholar. Yeah, well, there needs to be a, a you know, the, the issue of campaign finance has kind of fallen off the agenda. And, and one of the reasons that issue fell off the agenda, I think, is because there's a lot of money coming to Democrats, and Democrats historically have been the people who are concerned about campaign finance. Uh, that campaign finance issue needs to move back to the to the top of the agenda, especially after that Supreme Court decision in Citizens United, which allows corporations to, you know, basically give as much money as they want in our in our campaign system. Uh, so I suggest in the book that we really need to think at, at the most radical level. We need to be, be thinking about a constitutional amendment to amend the Constitution so that. Uh, free speech is, uh, political speech is not protected under the First Amendment. I mean, this is the reason why it's so difficult to put any limits on campaign spending in this country is because it is defined as speech. And uh, the courts have ruled that, you know, uh, under the First Amendment, you can't do that. Well, I think that we need to deal with that through constitutional amendment. And people say, well, that's, you know, we can never amend the Constitution, but in fact, during the progressive era of 100 years ago, we amended the Constitution three times to make possible big progressive reforms. So that can't be off the table. Uh, and then there's more moderate things we can do. I think that 
uh, more free television and radio time for candidates. I mean, one of the biggest areas of spending in campaigns is on television. And uh, I think it's quite reasonable for, for us to ask, hey, if you're going to have a broadcast license and use the public airwaves, which are controlled by all Americans, you should be willing to pony up free time at the uh, election during you election know, season. Back in 1968, <coughs> what was then the 20th Century Fund, now the 21st Century Fund, uh, put together a, um, um, a commission on campaign costs. And um, it was on money, television, and politics. And I happened to be the executive director of, of the commission, and Newt Minow was the chairman of the board. It was an excellent board and came up with very much the suggestion that you're making. And Tommy Corcoran, FDR's old advisor, came up to me afterwards and he said, young man, and I was young then, younger by far, uh, you're going to be disappointed if this isn't accomplished in the next decade. He said, don't be. It won't be. Not even 15 years. Maybe around 20 years. That's what I anticipate, but that was mm -hmm. 1968, and uh, I think we'll all be um, uh, talking about pie in the sky if we think there's going to be that kind of uh, change. Yeah, I'm not suggesting this is an easy one, uh, but uh, you know there have been a couple states which have passed public financing mm -hmm. laws, you know, public financing of elections so that candidates without much money can compete. That's a step in the right direction. We need, we need more of that. I mean, the issue's been dormant. I think the issue can come back and it will come back and we can see some more progress there. What are some of the other areas in which you find the young, liberal, rich functioning? Well, I have a whole book on, uh, a whole chapter in my book on uh, wealth and the culture war in which I look at the uh, donors who have been working for gay rights. And this is an area where some really big money has helped push uh, an agenda for uh, rights for gays and lesbians. Uh, a couple donors in particular have been uh, really instrumental. Uh, Tim Gill, who is a uh, guy who made a fortune uh, from Quark, which is a software, uh, made $400 million and has so, so far spent $150 million of that promoting gay rights. Uh, David Bonnet, who is uh, somebody who one of the lucky people who had an internet company uh, in the 90s and got out before the crash with a couple hundred million dollars. He spent uh, millions of dollars on, on promoting gay rights issues. Um, uh, John Stryker, who's the heir to a, a, a medical technology fortune and a billionaire, uh, he's another one of these big gay rights donors. And these guys together have spent uh, tens of millions of dollars uh, backing national gay rights organizations and going after conservative politicians who are, uh, who, who are against gay rights. And, and they've knocked off these various uh, right-wingers at the state level, uh, and they've been, they've been pushing hard for uh, marriage equality at the state level. You know, there's been a sort of a steady... Uh, progress in terms of winning gay marriage at the state level. And one reason that's happened is because these philanthropists have been operating behind the scenes uh, to, to uh, push this agenda through their uh, political donations and through their advocacy. Uh, so that's an area where it's, um, 
you know, there's been a big impact. And the harder issue of civil rights? The harder, the harder, civil rights is the harder issue, you know, as I, as I say in my book, the traditional civil rights issue has not been high on the agenda of uh, a lot of these new liberal rich people. How do you explain that? I explain it, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting because on the one hand, these are people who take multiculturalism for granted as a kind of just the way the world is. These are people who, uh, if you look at the tech industry, it is filled with, with non-whites in very high positions. Um, you know, if you look at finance, a lot of the, the, uh, the, uh, the so-called quants are, you know, people from, from uh, who are, are kids of immigrants or people from foreign countries. Uh, you know, if you, if you took away the, the uh, uh, non-white people from the tech and finance sectors, they would, the, those sectors would collapse pretty much overnight. And uh, the people who lead those sectors understand that. And, uh, and I think also see, you know, that, that they should be looking for talent regardless of, of uh, what color it, it comes in or what sort of nationality it represents. Uh, I mean, you know, these are people who believe in meritocracy. On the other hand, you know, the, the traditional civil rights agenda is something that has not really captured their attention. And I think it's that, that you know, a, a lot of them uh, grew up in the post-civil rights era. Um, you mean the battle has been fought? The battle has been fought. Uh, they're, they're just not that attuned to it. Uh, that said, you know, one of the largest uh, philanthropic gifts in, in American history in, in recent times has been uh, Bill Gates, who gave uh, $1.7 billion to the United Negro College Fund. So clearly Gates is, you know, somewhat attuned to, to those civil rights issue, issues, although, again, not in a kind of combative, uh, uh, not in a way that sort of uh, acknowledges that tr the traditional civil rights agenda of fighting discrimination is unfinished. That's very interesting that you put it that way, not in terms of acknowledging that the traditional battle, the usual, the old battle, is not over. And I would say that that's characteristic of this crew, which is that they don't tend to think in these sort of terms of, of social justice, right? They're they're not very enamored of labor unions. They're not so. Uh, uh, they're multicultural and want more and support more immigration, but they're not out there fighting for uh, the rights of the immigrants who are being denied health care or kicked off of Medicaid or uh, deported or, or what have you. It's not a social justice kind of of liberalism, and I think that's one of the, the shortcomings of it. You Is know, that, that it, what concerns you uh, as they set the agenda more? Well, I, I do think it's concerning because it's a kind of it's a it's a progressivism, but it's sort of a technocratic, uh, bloodless progressivism that that takes for granted the, the 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 notion that you know we can all get ahead if we just have you know equal opportunity if we all have a, education is one of the huge causes of the liberal rich and you know I write quite a bit about that in my book is you have a lot of these these super wealthy people who have made uh, uh, the education of kids of color in inner city schools a top issue for them, which I think is 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 laudable. On the well, other, you're not protesting against any of the issues they embrace. I, I think it's laudable to make education 
uh, inner city of inner city kids a, a top issue. The problem is is that they're they seem not so concerned about some of the the, the structural forces that that are producing uh, so much poverty in our cities and keeping people uh, poor. And do, you, do you think we can make it without the latter kind of understanding, the hard hitting economic understanding? I think it's a pretty limited vision if you believe that uh, more education is going to solve everything, you know, which seems to be the, the faith of a lot of these people. You know, if we just got these kids a proper education, then they wouldn't be poor. You know, Mark Zuckerberg, uh, the founder of Facebook, um, uh, just made his first big philanthropic gift, $100 million, at least, maybe $200 million, to the Newark public school system, which is a school system that serves exclusively almost exclusively kids of color uh, and is in a very, very poor community. Well, my guess is that even if you did fix that school system uh, and did give those kids a, a, a real educational opportunity, uh, they would still find their, um, their prosperity wanting in a, in a society where there's so many people already who are educated and who can't find good jobs. And I gather, as we just have a minute or so left, that your main concern is that these are the people who are setting our reform agenda in very large part. These are people who have tremendous influence in the Democratic Party. Uh, they are you know, very deep-pocketed donors, and they have a tremendous influence in philanthropy and civil society. I mean, Bill Gates is one of the most influential people in terms of the education reform battles going on. Well, Bill Gates is made a lot of money writing software, but I'm not sure that gives him the right to be in charge of our education system. It's interesting you say give him the right. That's a subject I think we'll pursue more as time goes on, but thank you so much for joining me today on The Open Mind because, David Callahan, your fortunes of change is such an intriguing uh, book on the rise of the liberal rich and the remaking, or one could say perhaps their remaking of America. Thanks again. Great to be here. Thank you. And thanks, too, to you in the audience. I hope you join us again next time. Meanwhile, as another old friend used to say, good night and good luck. And do visit our Open Mind website at 13.org slash openmind.